This is Live Wired in Calgary. Hey everyone, welcome back to Live Wired in Calgary. I'm your host, Darren Krause, editor at LiveWireCalgary.com. The show is done in partnership with our good friends at CJSW 90.9 FM and recorded in studio at the University of Calgary on traditional Treaty 7 land. Have we got a wonderful show in store for you this month. I talk with Calgary musician Matt Masters about how he turned a simple idea of doing live concerts on Calgarians curbsides into a nationwide, maybe even worldwide company in a matter of months. I also have a really great chat with Cheryl Fogo. She's an award-winning author, playwright, and filmmaker here in Calgary, and she has a new film coming up that will have its world premiere at the upcoming Calgary International Film Festival. Finally, we'll talk a little bit about education and the upcoming re-entry of students to in-person classes here in Alberta. Parents have a lot of questions, especially when it comes to potential outbreaks in classrooms. We'll try to answer some of those questions. We will fit in some on your radar for September. It's a fun show, so stick around. Check out Livewire Calgary on social media, on Twitter at Livewire Calgary, on Instagram at Livewire underscore Calgary, and like us on Facebook. I last saw Calgary musician Matt Masters play and MC a musical charity night for Classroom Champions, a local nonprofit that pairs up students in classrooms with Olympic athletes. I had also seen, of course, on social media his first curbside concert in Calgary when the pandemic first took hold. It's turned into something really big. Here's my conversation with Matt about Curbside Concerts Canada and the story of its humble beginnings. I'm joined by Matt Masters now. Of course, many of you may know Matt Masters as a popular Calgary musician, um, but he has also created something during this whole COVID-19 epidemic that uh, that that has really kind of lifted the spirits of many in Calgary, but also, it turns out, across Canada. Uh, Matt, thank you so much for joining me to tell me the story of Curbside Concerts Canada. Thanks for having me on, Darren. Take me right to the beginning. Um, how did it start? Where did the idea come from? You bet. So I'm a you know 20 plus year career musician. Um, you know I've always made my living performing and working like weekly in bars, theaters, that kind of thing. So when COVID 19 took away all my work one day on well essentially the 15th of March is when all my gigs just were going to be done and my family income was gone. Uh, I knew I had to do something. So, you know, my wife is a musician as well. We have three kids, and we've always made our living in music. Um, without that opportunity, it was, you know, either we switch careers entirely or we, you know, we figure something out. And so we came up with the idea of curbsideconcerts.ca, registered the website, and the idea was I would take my van. Uh, I had a friend build a stage that sat on the roof, and I would drive over to your house, set up the stage, and do a concert from your curb so that people could enjoy it from a distance. They could safely have a live music show. And, you know, the, the things that kind of inspired me, a friend of mine, Neil Zeller, here in Calgary, is a popular photographer. He was taking pictures called portraits. You know, he was standing on the sidewalk, and people were staying at a distance on their, you know, at their door, and he would take a telephoto lens and make a nice portrait. Well, it occurred to me that sound travels just as well as imagery does. <laughs> and, and then I started thinking about what I had in my garage, and I was like, I own everything I need 
to do this already. And so uh, that's, you know, we, we registered the website. And then um, I just started talking actually to my brother, who was then talking to a neighborhood friend of his. And the next thing I knew, his friend gave me a call. Uh, and we put together the first concert, and that was on April 21st. So how many concerts have you done up to this point? Uh, I, I haven't been keeping track, to be honest. I myself have probably played over 75 since April, wow. but as a company, Curbside Concerts has performed over 400. Right. So we're going to get into that in a little bit, but but I, I, I kind of want to talk to you about that um, that need for personal connection, that need for, I, I mean, even just being outside during all of this. During the lockdown, Matt, we were all bound to our homes. We had very little social contact for a while there. How important was it, do you think, both for your state of mind and for the state of mind of others, to be able to get out there and to be able to share this kind of thing with Calgarians? Well, I can speak to that on a lot of levels. Like, so for me personally, I'm someone who deals with anxiety and depression. I'm something I work with with my family doctor. And so for me as a musician, um, performance and connection with audience is a very big part of my uh, ongoing mental health. Um, and uh, for me, I wasn't doing great. You know, like I really wasn't doing great because uh, taking away not only my income, but also the interaction that I depend upon within my community, you know, uh, those smiles, those, uh, those faces, um, it was hurting on me. And, and I think that it's safe to say that a lot of people were feeling the same way. You know, we were all dealing with it as best as we could, but the uncertainty, the confusion, those are heavy duty things. And then you take away um, your ability to emote when you take away your community, right? I mean, like, who are you going to high five if not your hockey team after you score a goal? You know, who are you going to go uh, celebrate with after, you know, like a birthday if you don't have your, your friend who's having a birthday party? You know, so many of our emotional moments uh, require community. And when you strip music right down to it, right, you take away the radio, you take away the record. When you just have sound and community, that's really what music is about. It's about sharing a sound with people you like. And that's, at its essence, a really powerful thing. And so when we started um, performing these curbside concerts, uh, we noticed immediately there was a different relationship with the audience. It was not a situation of, hey, nice gig on a Wednesday night. It was a, a situation of, I haven't seen live music in months, or I haven't seen my neighbor in months, and I'm loving the moment of uh, sharing community through music. And that's ultimately, like, that's what music is. It's, it's gathering of people to share a sound. So, I mean, obviously, uh, the coronavirus has impacted people across Canada, uh, many people sharing these same sorts of feelings. What's interesting, or what was very interesting to me, was how this local effort kind of turned into something that spilled all across the country. Can you tell me how that was started? Like, how did, how did the ball get rolling? You bet. Well, <clears throat> once I started doing this, um, you know, very quickly, I realized that I was on to something here. Um, you know, no one was accessing live music in the whole country. Um, suddenly, I'd found a way to safely provide it. And um, so one of the assets we have as musicians, that's kind of an unknown thing that we have, is we have a network. Because in normal conditions, we all travel and tour across the country. We all open for each other at shows. You know, we see each other at a festival. And so musicians are, are part of this incredible network of uh, creative Canadians. And so I started reaching out to my friends. You know, I called a friend in Winnipeg. You know, I called a friend in Edmonton. And I said, look, I've got this thing going. Uh, do you want to help me and do you want to grow it in your area? And um, everybody said yes, you know. And, uh, and so now Curbside Concerts is, uh, you know, a fully functioning business. We've got uh, booking people, so we call producers, in Calgary, Edmonton, Winnipeg, and Toronto. 
Uh, we have, um, through a great, great partnership with a not-for-profit organization called Home Roots, which is a concert house concert uh, network that operates nationally. Through our connection with them, we're able to now book curbside concerts from Newfoundland to the Yukon, from Vancouver Island to Southern Ontario. And we are. I mean, like this morning, just before I got on with you, you know, uh, my overnight emails, I kind of send out to the different producers that come in from the website. And we had inquiries all over Alberta, um, you know, like Lethbridge, Spruce Grove, Edmonton, Calgary, um, Rimby. <laughs> and then uh, and then seeing things all over the place, too, all over Manitoba. We're quite we're, it's going really well in Manitoba. And uh, and then Ontario, we're really just setting up. You know, we've had probably about a half dozen gigs in, in Ontario, Toronto, London. Um, but we're just getting our producer online this week. Um, and so, you know, how many musicians are in Ontario. I wouldn't be surprised if we add another 100 gigs a week uh, once we kind of get Ontario rolling. I'm talking with Matt Masters, of course, Calgary musician. And he's also the founder of Curbside Concerts Canada. That's a little bit of a tongue twister if you try to say it too fast there, Matt. Now, I mean, you'd mentioned that you've got you've got concert requests from all over. One of the things that I was interested in is, are you trying to identify musicians from those particular local areas um, in order to, to perform some of these curbside concerts? Yeah, 100%. The whole notion is stay at home, right? I don't want to drive to Edmonton for a gig. That's too far for me, and I live in Calgary. So if someone has a request um, for a gig in Red Deer, let's find a Red Deer artist to play it. You know, um, part of the idea, actually, the whole idea is about being safe. You know, if this idea, if this service can't be provided safely, it doesn't work. You know, so that means um, we're developing limits on how far an artist can travel. You know, if, if an artist has to fill up a tank of gas on the way to a gig, that's like an interaction that we'd rather avoid, right? We essentially want our artists to go from their house to the curb at the gig, not step on the person's property, and then go straight home. You know, that's the idea. So it's not about touring the country. It's not about traveling distances. It's about musicians, because we live everywhere, musicians working safely in their neighborhood. Now, I mean, I'm willing, of course, to extend neighborhood. It's not just the, you know, the few blocks you live around, but like, you know, in your municipality, in your city, you know, like there's enough work in your community that a musician can work safely and make a living wage through this program. There are enough musicians living locally that anyone can hear any kind of music they want. They just have to learn to access their community. You see, it's in a lot of ways for us, it's actually a redefining of how the music uh, industry works. And I hesitate to use the word industry because we don't really see ourselves as a music industry company. We see ourselves as more of a community building company because that's actually uh, what we do. You know, this, the, the vehicle we use is music because music gathers people in a safe way because you can hear it from a distance. Right. But um, what we actually are bringing to communities is that smile that's shared across the street with the neighbor you haven't seen all summer. And that is like, it's a different kind of thing. So we want to make sure people stay local you know, it's this like we don't want people to invite their neighbors from, or sorry, we don't want people to invite people from far away. We want um, gigs to play for your neighbors. You know, it's it's all about being local, and it's because all of these things exist locally, but a lot of people don't know the musicians in their neighborhood. You know, because for so long, music has been packaged and sold, uh, and by me as well, um, to people who are music buyers. I mean, ticket buyers, um, record buyers, festival attendees, people who have. Uh, a commitment and an interest to travel to a venue, um, to adjust their schedules, that kind of stuff. But what we're what we're identifying is that culture can be delivered a la carte, you know, just like pizza. 
You know, if you want to order a Hawaiian pizza, you don't have to wait till Wednesday night at 6.30 at this one venue to get it. You just call a number and you get it, right? And it's the same way with music. With the notion of venues and festivals as our only places to get music, you know, you'd have to wait till that show happens. But if you happen to live in the neighborhood of a musician you enjoy, there's really no reason you can't just connect with them and have a gig happen on the day you want. Like, you know, it's your birthday on Wednesday. Why not have a gig on Wednesday in your front yard? You know, there's, it's, it's just about like bringing culture to people safely. And it turns out we can do that at any time of day. You know, we don't go too late into the night because we don't want to wake up babies. You know? I got <laughs> no little kidding. kids. I don't want to be waking up babies. So, <laughs> you know, but, but we really are trying to explore this new, this new thing, which is um, culture delivery. You know, in my mind, um, we will be experiencing culture at home more and more and more. But I don't mean through digital means. I mean, I don't mean through, you know, computers. I mean, live culture can come to your door. You know, like um, <laughs> almost anything you want can be created at a curb. Right. You know, we can't we can't make a concert hall, obviously. We can't make a, you know, like a sporting arena. But um, there's an amazing amount of things you can do <laughs> Absolutely. at someone's curb. So, Matt, what is it that you think, uh, like, what is it about music that kind of, is like provides that common bind between people. Sure. I mean, I could go, go deep on you. I mean, music <laughs> is like, it's the first art form, right? I mean, like it's that, that, that purity of sound, you know, when you're, when you're calling to someone, you know, when a baby hears the mother's heartbeat, you know, the ears work in an incredible way. And when you hear something that you like, you're drawn to it, no matter who you are. And when you, if you hear something that's interesting that you've never heard before, you're often drawn to it. You know, music is a very essential component of the human experience. You know, I've often joked that language is just a song with a lot of words. You know, if you can learn the words, you know, <laughs> anyways, you get what I'm saying. Um, music is that fundamental human experience. And in a time when we're longing for connection, when we're longing for community, music is this fantastic way to bridge that gap where you can safely, you know, that's the key. You can still sit 25 feet away and hear the song perfectly. Just think of, you know, you've seen a show at the back row of your favorite venue or the Saddle Dome or something, and you can still hear it. You don't have to be in a musician's face to hear a great song. And so that's the cool thing, you know, sit safely over there under that tree. And I'll stand safely over here at the curb, and we can share a beautiful, intimate musical moment together. Matt Masters, founder of Curbside Concerts Canada and, of course, popular Calgary musician. Uh, thank you so much for joining me today, Matt. Uh, again, you can find that at curbsideconcerts.ca. Uh, best of luck moving forward to you, Matt. Thanks so much, Darren. Classes begin in Calgary Public Schools on September 1st, and with this specter of COVID-19, some parents are concerned about the level of information being provided. Now, we're not talking about the typical public health information that we've heard since the very beginning, you know, washing hands, wearing masks, keeping your physical distance, those sorts of things. We're talking about things like, what happens if a teacher has symptoms? What if they test positive? What about students? How's all this going to be handled? These are reasonable questions, 
uh, as a parent. These are questions that I have and, and concerns that I share with many others. And on the heels of a dubious online setup when in-person classes were canceled last March, parents are asking if one of these situations happens, how is learning going to continue? We posed some of these questions to Alberta Education, and they provided some answers, but nothing in great detail. They said teachers would be asked to adhere to strict public health guidelines and not enter the school should they exhibit symptoms or test positive. I think the same goes for students. Parents are required to fill out a daily health form that kind of gives a a little bit of insight into what's happening with the child's health. And if they are sick or if they're exhibiting symptoms, parents are going to be asked to leave the kids at home. You're going to have to find child care. Now, the interesting thing is um, uh, we have some friends in Winnipeg and the Manitoba health minister actually said to parents uh, a couple of months ago, parents, you have plenty of time to figure this out. If you need child care, now is the time to arrange it. Given the situation and given the fact that at any moment um, your child or their class could be suspended for the day should somebody test positive for COVID, parents do need to be prepared. But if somebody tests positive and, you know, you're supposed to be taking the precautions, I mean, this is all well and good, but what do you do with the other 25 people in the class? Do they all get sent home at that point? Uh, How will those classes get made up? To what extent will teachers be making this decision on a weekly, monthly, I mean, maybe even a daily basis? What sort of disruption to classes is this going to bring? Substitute teachers, of course, are one answer. COVID-19 probably wouldn't be handled much different in that regard than a teacher calling in sick on any given morning. But are we going to repeat this scenario every single time a child in class exhibits symptoms? Will there be quarantines? Once again, how will this affect the ongoing learning in Alberta schools? The province does address some of these scenarios in a document released last Thursday. It talks about how and when classes may continue if there are symptomatic situations in either teacher, staff, or students, and obviously if there's a positive. The document says... That schools should have flexibility for student and staff personal circumstances such as flexible attendance and sick leave for students and staff who are symptomatic or who may have been identified as close contacts of a confirmed case of COVID-19. Okay, great. The period of time that children and students or children, students and staff members must remain home and isolate is dependent on symptoms and COVID-19 test results. And then they forward you to uh, an appendix. Classroom-based learning may continue and students, staff with no symptoms do not need to be sent home or quarantined if there is a symptomatic only individual in the school, not a confirmed case. Of course, if there is a confirmed case, uh, there would probably be a different protocol, um, and that gets deeper into this document. If there is an absence rate of 10% due to illness or there is an unusual amount of individuals with similar symptoms, schools are being asked to report this to the local public health unit um, you know, through the regular notification process. 
they want to be able to monitor certain clusters, you know, and and if there are outbreaks. But the question still remains, what happens if there is an outbreak? And what happens, I mean, kids are kids. We already know that they get sick during the school year. I mean, if, if I had a dollar for every virus my kids brought home that either my wife or I contracted, uh, you know what, we would be, we would probably have a nice size savings account. So how is this going to happen? And and if it happens in several pockets during the year, you know, how are we going to be able to trace uh, all of the contacts that some of these kids have been making, whether it was in the hallways, whether it's in the bathroom, whether it's in at, at recess? Uh, I mean, these are all things that, that maybe there is an answer, but they are not being articulated well enough to parents so that, so that there can be a little bit of a, a peace of mind in sending kids back to school. Now, I want to go back for one second to the idea of substitute teachers. Uh, It's one thing that parents have brought up to me, and in particular, my wife is, uh, she is trained as an educational assistant as well, Um, and and she asked, well, what if substitute teachers come into the schools? Um, You know, are, are they allowed, substitute teachers are often, you know, go in a certain school division from one school to another. How is this going to be tracked? Well, the province did say that they are advising substitute teachers to not take on multiple schools, but they are still able to take on multiple schools. They also said that uh, teachers... um, are, are not required to work at multiple schools, or sorry, substitute teachers are not required to work at multiple schools. So there's a little bit of a, a, a gray area here, and I find it interesting, especially because earlier this year, when we had all of the issues with the long-term care centers, one of the things that they did was they limited the movement of healthcare aides in between long-term care centers. Quite often, um, those employees would move from long-term care centers to long-term care center in order to pick up shifts, uh, of course, in order to get full-time like hours so they could make ends meet. So after all of this, um, you know, teachers, teachers want further measures taken to reduce class sizes, increase social distancing, and provide better personal protective measures. The ATA also asked that the school reopening be delayed one week to September 7th after the Labor Day long weekend to provide more time for preparations. Now, I understand this request, but many parents would respond with this. You've had the last six months to prepare. An extra week is not going to matter. Only time will tell how this all rolls out. It's just speculation until then. Everyone just needs to exercise common sense and restraint when the kids hit the books for the 2020-21 school year. For those of you looking for more information, we have that full document on school outbreaks at LiveWireCalgary.com. Check out LiveWire Calgary on social media, on Twitter at LiveWireCalgary, on Instagram at LiveWire underscore Calgary, and like us on Facebook. I'm here with award-winning Calgary author, playwright, and filmmaker Cheryl Fogo. Cheryl has a new film that will have its world premiere at the Calgary International Film Festival. It's called John Ware Reclaimed. It's about a southern Alberta cowboy. Uh, Cheryl, thank you so much for joining me to tell this story. 
You're very welcome. I'm happy to be here, and thank you for having me on. Tell me, what got you on to the story of John Ware? I first heard of John Ware as a fairly young person, and connecting to his story was an important part of my own ability to connect the two pieces of my identity that were strongest, one being that I am a person of African heritage, African descent, two being that I am a born and raised Calgarian. And that John Ware also inhabited those two identities was very critical to my acceptance of who I am and where I am uh, in this world. So I, I first connected with the story on a very personal level for those reasons. And then just as many people do, as soon as you start hearing anything about John Ware, reading about him, you just can't help but fall in love with the story. It's, uh, it's a fascinating story. He was a very compelling figure. And I started doing research about him in the early days of my career as a writer and researcher. I never really put that research to work until 2012 when the Stampede was celebrating its 100th. And Tundi Dewadu, who was the artistic director of Africa Day at that time, suggested that it was, uh, you know, that it was important for us to make sure that John Ware and his contributions to Calgary and Southern Alberta history and culture were acknowledged, even though John Ware had was already dead before the first stampede took place. Uh, we wanted him to be remembered in that year, so I started working on a presentation about him at that time. So it was a long journey connected to a lot of different threads from my own life. So John Ware, of course, a black cowboy from who, who, who settled in southern Alberta. And, and Cheryl, the interesting connection for me and what kind of raised my interest about this was uh, I, I started my own career out in Vulcan, and um, he is, is regularly referred to uh, out in southeastern Alberta. Um, one of the things that intrigued me about, about the title of this, John Ware Reclaimed, was that you wanted to to address some of the myths around John Ware. Now, without giving away too much of what's in the movie, are there are there things that you can talk about here in terms of some of those myths um, that, that maybe you really wanted to correct the record on? Well, yes, I'm, I'm just trying to think through what I can talk about without giving away spoilers <laughs> from the film. Um, it's interesting that you bring up your connection to the story through Vulcan, because John Ware's two daughters, Nettie and Mildred, lived in the area, as well as their uncle, John Ware's brother-in-law, Spence Lewis. And I think one of the myths around John Ware's life that I that was most important for me to correct, is that he was kind of a lone figure of blackness in Southern Alberta's history. In truth, the Ware and Lewis families had connections in many different parts of Alberta, including you know, the Vulcan area, and then even further east, uh, across the south and east, uh, 
Brooks, Duchess, Jem, Patricia, that area in there, as well as, of course, Millerville. And the Ware, the Ware sisters, John, John and Mildred's two daughters, were were members of a of a black community that also um, traversed those areas, and that was very active, especially in Calgary. And the Ware family were not singular um, singular black individuals in their time. They were a part of a community that eventually was very connected to my heritage, which is that of a descendant of the black migration of 1910. So a lot of people hold John Ware up as the lone representative of Southern Alberta's black history. And that is a myth that really bears correcting. So it was important for me to reclaim him as a member of a community and a member of a community that I was connected to, even though I was born 50 years after he died. Right. So, Cheryl... One of the things, um, and you and I had talked about this just before we started recording this this interview. Now, you began this project, as you had mentioned, back at the 100th anniversary of, of the Calgary Stampede, which was a few years ago. It's coincidental, it's maybe serendipitous that... It's, it's being released at a time um, on such a, a large stage when there, there are a lot of things going on with race relations. We've got the Black Lives Matter. What, what sort of importance? You mentioned that these are important. These have always been important stories to tell. But is there any additional significance to having a story like this, um, the importance of, of Southern Alberta heritage, being told at this time? It is a particular time. We are in, in a, a, unique, a unique time that I hope will be the beginning of a time of recognition of the importance of our stories moving forward permanently. A lot of the time, uh, I feel that, our, that black stories specifically are not, um, not recognized as being a part of Canadian history. Um, there, you know, that we spend a little time in February during Black History Month looking at some of our Black history, but really, Black history is just Canadian history and should have been included all along. Um, it is, it is interesting that my film just happened to to become ready to release at a time when people are. People in general are more interested in black stories. Black people have always been interested in our stories, so it's it's just interesting that our stories are being acknowledged by across a wider spectrum of viewers, readers, theater goers. And I hope it's permanent. I hope that we we aren't um, just experiencing a particular moment of of being in vogue because I think it's very important for society that we, especially for Canadian society, that we have a better understanding of our true history told from the perspective of people who have lived those stories. Having said that, I appreciate that people, all kinds of people have been reaching out to me since 
the death of George Floyd specifically, I appreciate that people are wanting to connect. At the same time, I would trade this moment for the life of George Floyd. I would much prefer that George Floyd was still alive. I would prefer that Breonna Taylor was still alive. So there is a, a uh, I don't even know how to quite describe it. It's, it's bittersweet is not the, the right word when I think about um, people's heightened interest in black lives and black stories. It is... Um, I would never want to think that people have to die in order for people to think that our stories matter. So it's a it's a kind of a strange um, place to be, actually. So what is it that you hope people will take away from this movie and getting a better understanding of John Ware? A lot of things. I, I hope people will have fresh eyes and new information will take away new information that will be a reset of the way people think about John Ware and his connections to our black history and his importance to Canadian history in general. That's one thing. Another is that I hope people will be able to truly just sit within the beauty of what he was and who he was and his family. I I hope people will just be able to sink into the joy of getting a chance to know him. So I think people take away new knowledge. I, I hope people take away new knowledge. I hope people take away joy. I hope people really enjoy the music that uh, that is threaded throughout the film there there are so many things that i'm excited about sharing with people those are those are a few and just you know mentioning again that he was connected to a black community cheryl fogo award-winning author playwright and filmmaker She has a new film coming out at the Calgary International Film Festival going on a little bit later in September. Cheryl, thank you so much for joining me and telling me the story of John Ware Reclaimed. I really appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. All right, I'm already over time this month, so I'm going to have to mix in a smidge of On Your Radar with the closing of the show. Cheryl Fogo's film, John Ware Reclaimed, uh, will premiere at the Calgary International Film Festival, which is September 23rd to October 4th. It will be in the Alberta Spotlight feature, so check that out later this month. I would like to thank Cheryl Fogo and Matt Masters for joining me this month, and of course you, the listeners, uh, we wouldn't be here without you. Tune in next month. Take care. (laughs) 